Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the Enduring Word podcast. Enduring Word is a free online Bible commentary written by Pastor David Guzik and is used daily as a trusted resource for millions of believers around the world. We are honored to present the wisdom of the Bible to you, one chapter and verse at a time, to help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. Today, David continues teaching through the book of Genesis. We'll take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and consider what was before the beginning and at the beginning. This will be our second study through the book of Genesis. Uh, Last time, we only considered one verse, Genesis 1-1. Today, we're going to start again at Genesis 1-1. We're going to go back where we started last time, and we're going to continue on only to verse 2. As I told you before, these first few chapters of the book of Genesis are really slow going because there's so much here for us to think about, for us to examine, and it's really foundational for understanding the rest of the scriptures. So let's begin at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 with a simple factual statement regarding God's work as creator. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I almost regard that as a summary statement that's going to be detailed in the following verses, but we can't get around the fact that the Bible simply and straightforwardly declares that this universe, this world, did not create itself, nor did it come about by chance. It was created by God, who by definition, is eternal and always has been existent. Now, the Bible's clear teaching of God's creation is throughout the scriptures, and I think it is a powerful contrast to the inherent uncertainty of modern science. You see, some scientists will often act certain in their knowledge about the origin of the universe. But what's strange is every few years, you seem to have another revolutionary discovery. Now, I think that's good. A good scientist is always willing to receive new data and to rework his or her understanding in light of the new data. But it just shows that there's so much more out there to discover. And in some way, scientists are feeling their way along in the dark. We're grateful for what they discover. We're happy for the work that they do. But honest scientists, those who will resist the powerful draws of pride or arrogance, honest scientists will appreciate how little they know. And they will hold their present discoveries with a sense of humility. And I would just simply suggest this to you, that some scientists, maybe even you would say many scientists, I don't know, some, many, certainly not all, but it's not just a couple. They are overly sure, overly certain when it comes to what may be known of the universe. Now, I don't think that We, as just everyday people, or especially myself, as someone who's very interested in understanding and teaching the truth of the Bible, I don't think that we just have to sort of lay down in front of that. The constantly changing scene of science 
can be illustrated by something I read years ago. It was a sidebar to a science article in the Los Angeles Times. And again, this was many years ago, but I think it sort of gives you a feeling. So listen carefully as I read to you from this article, this sidebar to an article titled The Big Bang and What Followed It. Okay, here's what the article said. In the beginning, there was light, but also quarks and electrons. The Big Bang spewed out energy that condensed into radiation and particles. The quarks joined into protons and careened wildly about in a hot, dense, glowing goop as opaque as a star. Time, 300,000 years or so, passed. Space expanded, matter cooled. The electrons and protons, electrically irresistible to each other, merged into neutral hydrogen. And from this marriage, the first atoms were born. Space between atoms became as transparent as crystal, pretty much the way it looks today. The rest, they say, is history. Atoms merged to form dust clouds, which grew into stars and galaxies and clusters. Stars used up their nuclear fuel, collapsed and exploded in recurring cycles, fusing elements in the process. Occasionally, a stable planet condensed around a second (coughs) generation star, excuse me, where carbon-based life forms grew into, among other things, cosmologists, the better to complicate it all. Friends, I don't know what your reaction is when I read. Again, it's an older article. It might even be from the 1990s. But I think it's illustrative of how science describes creation without God. And it's basically this. Things just happen. Just a bunch of stuff just kind of happened. And the normally very stable concept of cause and effect seems to be thrown out the window. There's more to be considered, more to be added into the whole framework, our whole understanding of creation and the existence of our universe and our planet and human life on this earth than just the wishes of astrophysicists. Now, way back more than 100 years ago, almost 110 years ago, 1913, an astronomer in Arizona discovered that stars appeared to be moving away from the Earth at tremendous speeds, up to 2 million miles an hour. In 1919, another American astronomer, his name was Edwin Hubble, He used this information to develop a theory of an expanding universe, which is the foundation of what's called the Big Bang idea. Early on, other scientists discovered background radiation from all different parts of the universe, which they suppose is the leftover noise from this first great explosion, what they call the Big Bang. But scientists are really not that much closer at all to knowing anything about this instant beginning to the universe. In fact, as is the case with science, there's nothing to be faulted with science about this. But it's one of those cases where the more they find out, the more they discover how much they don't know. Now, there was a time when astrophysicists were faced with another challenge. They were trying to figure out what dark matter is. And listen, theories change over the decades. But at one time, dark matter was a term that some scientists used to explain 
an enormous apparent excess of gravity in the universe. Dark matter may take up, to some estimates, 99.9% of everything in the universe, but nobody knows really with great certainty what it is. Suggestions are offered, of course, but they're only suggestions. David O. Caldwell of the University of California at Santa Barbara, right near to where I am right now, said, when it comes to dark matter, the only thing that we are convinced of at all at the moment is that it's there. But you know, there's some scientists can't even agree on that. A man named Michael S. Turner, he was an astrophysicist professor at the University of Chicago, said it's very humbling. The origin, composition, energy, and mass of the most common matter in the entire universe is unknown. Now, again, God bless these scientists for admitting their limitations. And that's no criticism upon science. Honest scientists will be honest about what they know and about what they don't know. But again, this constant uncertainty it's shown again and again. And again, I'll read to you from an older article. Again, this is from the 1990s, but I think it still reflects scientific thinking and approaching, even though progress has been made in the many years since then. This, again, was from a Los Angeles Times article titled Rethinking Cosmic Questions. Here's from the article. Ever since people first stood up amid the tall grasses and looked about the world in wonder, religion, mythology, and science have all struggled to explain how the world came to be. But when it comes to creation stories, few can hold a candle to the tale cooked up by modern cosmologists. Now, again, this is from the 1990s, so they're not so modern today, but it's a still general era. Quoting again from the article. Dialing back the cosmic clock about 15 billion years, they depict a time before time, a place before space existed, out of nothing and nowhere, all the energy and matter in the universe exploded into existence in an event that came to be called the Big Bang. While masterfully spinning ideas out of faith and equations, cosmologists were pitifully short on data. They could not see or measure the phenomenon they were trying to explain. 25 years ago, Cosmology was very close to religion, said physicist Robert Pessy of UCLA. Experimental cosmologist Chris Stubbs of the University of Washington said this, you've got these things that are ridiculously far away and ridiculously faint, and you've got to make sense of it. At times, I miss the old days when I could just walk into my office and not worry that someone would disprove my theory in a few works said Rocky Cold of the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Illinois. Many of us who have worked in this field for decades still worry that the whole house of cards is going to collapse, said Princeton cosmologist David Wilkinson. Recent observations, for example, suggest that the universe is younger than its oldest stars, an enigma that has astronomers scrambling for explanations. The bigger mystery, however, strikes even scientists as so astonishing to be absurd. I'm still quoting from the article. 99% of the universe, according to some estimates, is made up of totally unfamiliar stuff commonly known as dark matter. It's actually mostly transparent. It neither shines nor casts a shadow. Whatever it is, 
It's not like us. According to some theories, it is also the glue that holds the universe together and keeps it from expanding forever into endless space. That's the end of my quotation from that Los Angeles Times article. Again, from many years ago, but I think it it still reflects the grasping, the uncertainty, and admittedly so, the adventure of science. Science is the investigation of what we don't know and trying to figure it out, and it's a glorious thing. But I think it's important for scientists to remain humble about what they don't know. A man named Christopher Stringer of the Natural Museum in London said this, The study of human origin seems to be a field in which each discovery raises the debate to a more sophisticated level of uncertainty. Now, again, that's not to criticize in the slightest way scientists or the study of science, of course. But again, it's an encouragement for every one of us to keep a clear head and to remain humble. You see, one may doubt the ability of many modern scientists to answer the questions of origins. But all of the questioning about uh, some of the findings, or at least the assertions of modern science, does not automatically give us confidence in the answer that's found in the book of Genesis. Even if at certain points you could say, well, science doesn't know, or science had this wrong, or science came to a different discovery, or science is learning all the time, all of which statements are true. Even if you could demonstrate that, it doesn't mean that what the book of Genesis tells us about the origin of the universe. It doesn't mean that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. It doesn't mean that that is necessarily true. There are some people who believe that the book of Genesis only records a creation myth. It's meant only to show the greatness of God in poetic grandeur. Now, I would say that there are poetic elements to the account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We believe it was still written, or I'll say I'll believe, I don't want to use the royal we carelessly here, I believe that it was still written to record a historical reality. I think it's very interesting and very um, helpful for us to understand that when other passages of Scripture talk about creation outside of Genesis, it demonstrates this idea that the Genesis record in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is historical. For example, Psalm 136. You can look it up. You can look for uh, the the teaching that I have through Psalm 136. I think it would be beneficial for you. Psalm 136 connects the Genesis account of creation with the rest of Israel's history in a seamless fabric. This is what God did in creation. This is what God did with Noah. This is what God did with Moses. This is what God did with Abraham, presenting it all together in a seamless fabric of history. The creation account was not put into a category of historical fiction. I would also argue that Jesus quoted Genesis as if it were a purely historical record. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, and in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, the great uh, author, C.S. Lewis, He wrote 
that when he heard a biblical scholar claim that the Genesis creation account was a myth, he didn't want to know about the man's credential as a biblical scholar. He wanted to know how many myths the man had read. You see, C.S. Lewis, as a literary scholar, knew a lot about myths, and he could see that the biblical account of creation was unlike the mythical accounts from other cultures, from other early records. Now, it is true, and it's important to say, that Genesis was not written primarily as a scientific document. But if God were to give us a truly scientific, detailed account of creation, written in scientific language, there would have been no one who could understand it. And no end to the length of such an account. Even if God would have given it in simple 21st century scientific language, it would have made no sense to all previous generations. And it would make no sense to future generations either. Friends, I think I appreciate more and more as the years go on a principle from Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. Let me share it with you, this verse. Proverbs 25, 2 says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Friends, I apply that principle to science. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And God has concealed almost unbelievable truth and fact and wonder and miracle in the observable world around us, from the most distant star to the tiniest organisms on this earth. God has concealed so much wonder in all of it. And God has concealed, and he has the right to conceal it. But it is the glory of kings to search out a matter. It is the glory of mankind to go and to figure it out the best we can. So friends, even though I don't agree with the assertions of some, many, whatever you want to say, some scientists who want to push God out of the equation for the creation of the universe and the world and humanity, I would disagree with them. In no way am I anti-science. It is the glory of kings to search out a matter. And scientific inquiry is the glory of mankind. Yet, it must all be done with utmost humility, realizing that God conceals these matters for mankind to search out. So think about that. Now, let's come back to Genesis 1.1. I know we're not getting very far, but Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, God did all this in the beginning. But I would like to suggest to you that God did things before the beginning. In other words, before creation started, before God created the universe, at least as we know it, the world that we live on, the earth, in humanity and the created order all around us, before God did any of that, there were things that God did before the beginning. So let's talk about some of these things that were before the beginning. 
What was before the beginning? Well, first of all, God was before the beginning. God himself was before the beginning. I like what it says in Psalm 32, verse 2. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Yes, indeed, that is true of the Lord. Now, there are some people who are troubled by the questions, well, where did God come from? Or troubled by the question, who created God? The answer is found in the definition of God. I genuinely appreciate this definition of God uh, given to us by J. Edwin Orr. He was a great speaker and scholar of a previous generation. I appreciate this definition. Look at it here with me. J. Edwin Orr defined God like this. God is the only infinite, eternal, and unchangeable spirit, the perfect being in whom all things begin and continue and end. I want you to notice one of the things that Orr spoke about there is that God is eternal. He's infinite. He's unchangeable. This is reflected through many passages of Scripture. For example, Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, say this in poetic power and beauty. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Well, absolutely that's true. God is God, and he's been God from the very beginning. So before there was anything else created, God himself existed. But that's not the only thing. Here's something else that existed before the beginning. Not only God, but you could say God in three persons existed before the beginning. We find this from passages such as the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 5 and verse 24. Let me read that passage to you. John chapter 20, uh, 17, uh, verses 5 and 24. Again, I want to stress, this is Jesus praying these words to his God and Father. Jesus said, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, before the world was, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Kind of a staggering statement, isn't that? That God the Son speaks to God the Father, speaking of the relationship, a relationship of shared glory. Jesus mentioned the glory which I had with you, God the Father, before the world was a relationship of love and affection, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So, before the beginning, what did we have? We have God. We have God in three persons. And now thirdly, we have God's eternal purpose. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that before the beginning, there was an eternal purpose in the heart of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, describes that eternal purpose. It speaks of how God, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Again, that's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. Now, earlier in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10, he speaks of how God's purpose was to resolve or sum up all things in Jesus Christ as if Jesus himself is the answer to a great and complex problem that God wrote out on what I sometimes call the blackboard of the universe. Jesus is the answer. He is the instrument. He is the key to God's eternal purpose. Again, as it says there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, as part of this eternal purpose, God had a very specific plan to fulfill this eternal purpose. And many different aspects of that plan are revealed as having existed in God's mind, in God's heart, before he created the worlds. For example, I'll show you what I mean. In God's plan that was made, that was established before the beginning, God established, God planned that he would die for his people. Again, the reference to that is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, which says this. He indeed was foreordained, he's speaking of Jesus Christ here, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. In other words, the coming, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world. We also find in the scriptures that before the beginning, God promised eternal life unto his people. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 reflects this. That particular passage says this, uh, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Before God even established, so to speak, the clock of the universe, he established that eternal life would be given to his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, contains another aspect of God's plan, God's plan fulfilling his eternal purpose that God established before he created anything, and that was to work through the wisdom of the cross. You'll see what I mean when I read to you the passage here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery which was ordained before the ages for our glory. In other words, before the ages, before God did or established anything, sort of drawing on that same idea from Titus, uh, before that God established that he would work through the wisdom of the cross. Another thing that God has revealed that he did or planned or set in motion before the beginning was this idea to give grace unto his people. That's contained for us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse 9, where we read this, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. There is some sense that 
in the eternal plan, in the eternal purpose of God. Again, these are things that are hard for us, admittedly, to sort of wrap our head around. God gave grace to his people before he created anything. Let me point out one more thing. It's found in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that God, before the beginning, as part of his plan, not only did God plan to die for his people, to promise eternal life, to work through the wisdom of the cross, to give grace to his people, but finally, he planned to choose a people unto himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Friends, it's absolutely radical. It's amazing to think of all that God did even before the beginning. We come to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we come to it saying, okay, this is the beginning. Well, really, God existed and had planned and set in motion many aspects of his redemptive plan before he created a single thing, even down to choosing a people for himself. And let me say one more thing. Before the beginning... At some time before God created, God created the angels. Why? Because Job chapter 38, verse 7, I don't have the verse in front of me. You can look it up yourself. Job chapter 38, verse 7 tells us that the angels witnessed the creation of the heavens and the earth, and they rejoiced. So angels had some existence. They were created before God created the aspects of the material universe that we can see around us. And there's a lot of mystery, I will admit, to the creation and the purpose and whatever that happened to be with the angels. But we just simply know that the material universe that we are familiar with right here, right now, that the angels existed and witnessed and rejoiced when God created those things, at least according to Job chapter 38, verse 7. All right. Now let's go on. We're going to make a big jump. We're going to move to the second verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 is, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Of course, this tells us something about the nature of the earth at first creation, if we want to use that phrase. It's very interesting that some Bible students or scholars, whatever you want to call them, through the last few hundred years, have translated the idea in this verse as the earth became without form and void. Again, I want to recall your mind to what the text says there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. There are some people who translate that idea as the earth became without form and void, which apparently, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but apparently that's permissible in the Hebrew grammar and structure of the sentence. This is their thinking, is that the earth was originally created not 
without form and not void, but rather the earth became without form and void through the destructive work of Satan. Now, from my study, this is not the plain grammatical sense of the ancient Hebrew. It's sort of thing that you could kind of force into the category, but it's not the plain grammatical sense of the ancient Hebrew. But those who follow this idea look to a verse in Isaiah chapter 45, happens to be verse 18. Let me read that to you here. Isaiah 45, 18 says this. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now, did you notice that line from verse 18 where the Lord says, I did not create the world in vain. That's the same Hebrew word as the word used for void in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, where it simply says that the earth was without form and void. Now, based on these ideas, some people had advanced what is sometimes called the gap theory. Here's the gap theory, at least the best I understand it. It's the idea that there was a long and indefinite chronological gap between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Most gap theory advocates use the theory to explain the fossil record and the apparent age of the universe and the earth. They will assign old and extinct fossils to this indefinite gap. In other words, the idea is something like this. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Then Satan comes to the earth and messes it up. How, when, why, you know, what he was doing, we don't exactly know. But Satan messed everything up. And as a result of Satan's great destruction, the earth became without form and void. And essentially what you have from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 on is God's, or actually you could say from verse 2 on, because the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters is part of this. Whatever you have from verse 2 on is God's recreation. So, when a scientist says, oh, the universe is so many billion years old, you say, no problem, that goes in the gap. When they dig up weird fossils and say these are so many millions of little, no problem, it goes in the gap. Now, let, let me explain this. This is just sort of my take, my understanding here. Whatever merit the gap theory may have, and personally, I, I don't give it a lot of weight. I, I don't think it's heresy. I, I think it's a bit strange, but again, I, I don't think it's entirely provable one way or another. But whatever merit the gap theory may have, I do not believe that it can adequately explain the extinction and fossilization of ancient animals. The Bible says plainly that death came by Adam. That's in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. By Adam came death. And since fossils are the result of death, 
I don't think they could have happened before Adam's time. I don't think that there could have been a gap creation, a gap world that perished, that became without form and void under the violence of Satan or under the judgment of God. And then God started things all over again with the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Now, back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we read, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. There are people who see in this a sense of resistance to the moving of the Holy Spirit on the earth. Where it says here in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, again, some people speculate that this was because Satan was cast down to the earth and he resisted God's plan, even though this resistance was futile. I, I think this is likely reading too much into this, but we do see that very definite phrase there in chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. When God, as part of his creative work, began to transform the earth into something beautiful and compatible with his great plan, he started with the work of the Spirit of God. You could say that the Holy Spirit begins every work of creation. The Holy Spirit begins every work of recreation. Like what Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of Victorian England, had to say about this. He said this, that the first divine act in fitting up this planet for the habitation of man was for the Spirit of God to move upon the face of the waters. Till that time, all was formless, empty, out of order, and in confusion. In a word, it was chaos. And to make it into that thing of beauty, which the world is at the present moment, even though it is a fallen world, it was needful that the movement of the Spirit of God should take place upon it. Well, amen to that. Matter of fact, one commentator, Leopold, says that the idea of the Spirit of God was hovering is that it's a verb describing a vibrant moving, a protective hovering. He says that this was the preparatory work for leading over from that which had no life to life, from the inorganic to the organic. Again, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters as a bird would hover over its young chicks or whatever, baby birds. So again, the earth was without form and void. Let me kind of finish well, this is my first finishing here. Just like preachers often do, I'll have a few different conclusions. But let, let, let me finish our little look here at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. I don't have a problem with the idea of God creating an old universe or an old earth. That God created things that have the appearance of being in the midst of a time sequence with having either apparent or manufactured age built into creation. 
I would argue that Adam will get to his creation shortly. Adam was already of mature age when he was created. And there was age purposefully built into Adam. This was no mistake. God did it this way on purpose. Likewise, the trees in the Garden of Eden had rings in them. There were undoubtedly canyons and sandy beaches in Adam's world. Now, if you look at a geography that has, you know, sort of some granite or or rocky cliffs with a seashore coming up to it, and then there's sand on the beach, a geologist will tell you, well, you know, the waves have beat against the rock over so many years. It's eroded it down into sand. That's the sand you see on the beach. And the sand is the process of the result, I should say, of the process of hundreds, if not thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years of waves washing up on this landscape. And look, that certainly could be the cause of sand, but isn't it also possible that God could just create sand? That God could create things with apparent age in them. I know that there are some esteemed brothers and sisters who who believe that that would be deceptive of God to do that. Why would God build things with apparent age within them? But I, I have to say, just as my own, as a regular guy and as a man who really loves the Bible and studies the Bible and teaches the Bible, I say just philosophically, I don't have a hard time with that. I don't think it's deceptive of God at all. I don't think it's any more deceptive of God than him to create Adam as a full-grown human being. On the day he was created, how old was Adam? You might say, oh, he was a day old. Or you could say, well, he looks about 25 or 30 to me. Which is true. Well, there's a sense that both are true. Friends, I have to say, That when I hear the scientist say, the universe is this many billions of years old, the earth is this many billions of years old, I guess they're measuring the age of the earth in billions, or is it millions? I'm sorry, I don't keep as close track of this as I should. But when I hear them talk about these extreme age levels, it doesn't distress me, it doesn't disturb me at all. I say, well, What a glorious thing for God to build in so much apparent age into the universe, into the earth. And I say, dear Mr. or Miss Scientist, please keep searching. Please keep researching. I think that the more you know, the closer you come to God's truth, not the further you'll move away from it. Well, that's going to be it for our little look here through Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. But before we leave... Let's take a look at just a couple ideas at how Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, how does this point to Jesus? So let me just suggest quickly two ways that this points to Jesus. Number one, it reminds us that Jesus is the creator. Now, in our last study, I spoke of this in some depth. The many passages, especially in the New Testament, that attribute the creation of everything that exists to Jesus Christ. The the creation was the work of the triune God, but since Jesus is the second person of God's holy trinity, 
Jesus Christ is the creator. And so we need never to forget that. But then secondly, let me show you a second way that just these two verses point to Jesus. I talked about all these things that happened before the beginning. Don't ever forget, please, that Jesus Christ, as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, that he existed before the beginning. Jesus's existence did not begin when he was conceived in Mary's womb, when he was born as a babe in Bethlehem. No, Jesus Christ, as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, he existed even before there was anything. Now, I already told you that God existed before there was anything. Specifically, this is said of God the Son, Jesus Christ himself. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says this, But you... Excuse me, let me go to that verse here. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathoth, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Now check this out. Whose going forths are from of old, from everlasting. Friends, isn't that glorious? The going forths of Jesus Christ are from old, from everlasting. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the Alpha, that's the beginning, and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. That's in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. This means that from the very beginning, Jesus was there. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he existed as the second person of the Trinity. And there's many passages that tell us that there was a relationship of love, fellowship, and shared glory that the Father and the Son shared before the creation of all things. Now, the name Jesus was not known as a name for the second person of the Trinity until the angel Gabriel announced it to Mary shortly before Jesus was conceived by a miracle of God in her womb without normal relations. But the eternal Son existed before he revealed himself as Jesus. Think of it, friends. Before Bethlehem, Jesus was the creator of all things. He's before all things. He's the creator of all things. He's eternal. He's not a part at all of anything that was created. Whatever has not been created is God. And Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. Therefore, he is God. Now, knowing that Jesus' going forths are from old, from everlasting shows us some important things. It shows us the glory of Jesus. He's far more than a man. It shows us the love of Jesus. Jesus left the glory of heaven for us. It shows us the nature of Jesus, that he would add humanity to his deity. And it shows us the sympathy of Jesus, that he remains fully man and fully God able to save all those who come to him. So friends, take it to heart. The Jesus who came and walked this earth and died on a cross and rose from the dead, 
to rescue all those who would put their faith in him. That very same Jesus lives, reigns, rules, and walks among us to this very day. He is with his people, and he is God who existed before the beginning. Next time, we're going to get a start at verse 3 and see how far we make in these early chapters of the book of Genesis, where the going is a bit slow, but I hope it's rewarding. Let me conclude with prayer. Father in heaven, we're very grateful for the somewhat mind-bending work of Jesus Christ, who was not only a man who walked in our midst, but he was and is the eternal God who existed before the beginning. Thank you that you didn't send some lowly angel or even a great man or woman to accomplish our salvation. The eternal God came and walked among us. We're very grateful for it, and we receive all that he has to give us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. For more information about Enduring Word and Pastor David Guzik, please visit EnduringWord.com or download our free Enduring Word 